And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's the election edition. Mondays, it's the insiders. Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Week is back, starting September 13th. For one week, the iconic chocolate chunk cookies topped with a pink and blue smile will be available at Tim Horton's restaurants across Canada. 100% of the proceeds from each smile cookie will be donated to local charities and community groups in each restaurant's neighborhood. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, the Smile Cookie campaign has raised more than $60 million for charities, hospitals, and community programs across the country. Grab your Smile Cookie from September 13th to 19th only at Tim Hortons. And hello there. Yeah, it's a big week. It's a big week. This is week four of the election campaign. We're into the nitty-gritty now and a couple of big debates. Wednesday night, it's the French language debate. Thursday night, it's the English language debate. The one and only English language debate during the campaign. We're going to talk lots about the debates coming up on the uh, insiders with our party insiders, Sapria Devueti, the Liberal Party, Tim Powers, the Conservatives, Kathleen Monk, NDP. You can't get three better people than these three. I've known them uh, for quite some time, some for a long time. And they really have a good analytical mind. They also kind of, you know, they, they know the talking points that the parties have. They know each other's talking points. And so they're, uh, they're great to listen to. And I know you're enjoying them as well because I've, like to, I like to say, I've seen the numbers for last week and they're pretty good, especially for the insiders and good talk and smoke mirrors and the truth and the reporters. They all uh, are listened to by you and you also like to listen to your take on all this on the Thursday edition last week of uh, your thoughts on the campaign. All right, we're going to get to uh, the insiders and their take on a big week ahead. And as I, you know, a lot of things are at stake this week. The polls seem to indicate a very, very close race between the Conservatives and the Liberals and everybody watching closely to the NDP in terms of how they're doing, what kind of campaign that Jagmeet Singh is running, and what impact that's having on the two front-running campaigns. So a lot of talk on that and a lot of talk about political ads as well because political ads reared their head over the last couple of days of this holiday weekend. So let's get at it. Here we go. Coming up with the Insiders. All right, the Insiders are here. Sapria is in... Well, you're somewhere in, like, cottage country, Ontario, right? Yeah, I'm near Muskoka, actually, right now. Good. Good for you. That's where uh, one should be on a Labor Day weekend as we uh, as we get ready to end our, our summer on this uh, on this Monday. Um, Tim is in Newfoundland. He should the, be here always, Peter. should uh, be here all the time. Yeah, like, do you go there, out there every weekend? I, I have a bit of, since we've been allowed back in the beginning of July, I have been here four times, four times. Yes. That's pretty good. And he's uh, a good son. He's good <laughs> to his mom. And I'm stuck at my desk in Ottawa, Peter, nothing exciting here. That's because you're working. Everybody <laughs> else right, is I'm holiday. A working mom. <laughs> working mom. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. I, I want to start on, um, on TV ads because, you know, for the, I've always sort of thought about political ads on television and you know radio and on uh, social media, I guess, is really where it plays out these days. But I've always looked at them kind of like this. There's, there's the your basic high road ad, maybe kind of just very neutral or it could be a little bit funny, but it's basically boring. It gets interesting when you start to, to move into the, the kind of negative ads. And there can be soft negative uh, or there can be hard negative and you know when somebody goes negative soft or hard that it's likely because they think they're in trouble and they've got to do something to get back into the position they want to be in so we watched the liberals this weekend uh go with a series of soft negative ads um they're not like hard negative like people can be really critical of them 
because I don't think they're they're that kind of ad. We've all seen those in the past, mm-hmm. but um, but these are are trying to make a point, and they're 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 dragging Aaron O'Toole through his vulnerabilities in these ads. But let's talk about enough from me. Let's talk to the professionals as to what they sense in the early go round on the political ads. And uh, Sapria, you wanted to deal with this, so you get to start. Yeah, I mean, look, I think going negative is always sort of interesting, right? I think we tend to, and there's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, in Politico circles where it's like nobody likes negative ads. You always want to make positive, hopey, changey, optimistic ads. But the reality is people like negative ads. It's, you know, nobody likes to admit it. Nobody wants to say, I really like this negative ad because you kind of seem like a jerk, but you know, it's, it's just, it's just the way it is. And so I, what I really like about the ads that the, you know, that the liberals put out over the weekend. um, I mean, well, there are a couple of things. The first is that first and foremost, and this is where I think O'Toole can possibly get into quite a bit of trouble here is that his own words are being used against him, right? Um, and we're seeing this when we're talking about whether we were talking about abortion and his uh, explicit mention of conscious rights and the platform. Now we're talking because of the debate that was brought up when it comes to, you know, uh, the ban on assault rifles and page 90. And, you know, now there's page 90 in his platform and he's doing a little bit of flip-flopping here. But this is what happens when you run as a true blue, you know, quote unquote conservative, trying to appeal to a segment of the conservative base that is often offside with the general electorate on not just guns, but on a myriad of issues. And so it'll be really interesting, I think, going forward now that he is, you know, the front runner and now that people are trying to picture a a prime minister O'Toole, what that sort of looks like. And Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to pin Aaron O'Toole down as like this lunatic, fringy, nutty guy because he is very likable. But that's also why when he was running the way he did as leader, it was so confounding, I think, to a lot of observers and to a lot of people. I think that uh, your point about negative ads is right. I mean, uh, the fact is, whether people like them or not, they work. Mm -hmm. They tend to have worked over time. Even some of the worst of the negative ads, uh, those uh, who, who track these things say they work. Um, Tim, where are you on all this? Well, it's funny on that very ad, uh, Sapria is talking about, talk about your modern quintessential Canadian moment. I saw the contrast ad, the Trudeau ad, uh, turning around O'Toole's words, sitting in a Tim Hortons drive through and it was being tweeted out by liberal staff people or other liberal supporters, which tells you something else too, Peter. Part of what these ads too are about, uh, not just to uh, go after O'Toole, but also to motivate liberal troops and forces. And social media allows you to do that because whether they will admit it or not, um, they're anxious. We're all anxious. It's a close election. You'd be foolish not to be anxious. So that's part of the the tool there. Sapria, I think uh, the Conservatives yesterday also put out an ad in response to the ad, which talks about the speed at which things get done now, using Trudeau's words against him. I haven't seen that one. I thought the ad the Liberals put out was pretty good because the one thing I'm picking up here, and I think we'll see this play out this week here in Newfoundland, and this is strong liberal territory, as you know, they have six of seven seats here. But when I was talking to human beings outside of us who don't live politics, the two things they came to me with were about, we're not, why do we need this election? But we're not really sure we can vote for Aaron O'Toole. They're angry at Trudeau but they're not sure whether they can go as far as O'Toole. The liberals are picking this up in the research. The conservatives are picking this up in the research. So when you see that liberal ad of yesterday, it plays to that theme. Okay, we get you're angry at us, but do you want this other person who you don't know, who has these positions that may not be comfortable for you? And I think we're going to see a lot more of that back and forth with both parties. Yeah, and I'm sure they've got lots of them, you know, that are ready to go in increasing terms of either negative or not, um, and ready just to push the play button on those. Um, but Kathleen, you know, you're not just a political strategist. You're a former producer, so you're looking at this stuff from a from a number of different angles. And and what are you seeing? Yeah, from a television news perspective, but also as someone who's produced a lot of uh, different campaign ads too. So I guess the one thing, the refinement I put on what Sapria said off the top, um, you know, she made the comment saying nobody likes. Um, 
or I can't remember what you said exactly about negative ads and things. You go to any focus group anywhere and they will say, oh, I don't like that ad. It's too negative. Tisk tisk. It, it would never work on me is what every focus group participant says. But then we know from testing them, you know, two weeks later or on a callback that they do remember the ad. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. So they'll say they don't like the ad, but we know the ad works because there's been some research that says that almost the negative ads are almost twice as sticky. So people tend to remember them more. And therefore, from a campaign perspective, they they work, right? And that's why we look at them. But you picked up on a few other things. So I would say all the ad every ad um, series or, you know, when you're thinking about creating ads for a campaign, it always starts with the research. So it starts with all of those focus groups. It starts with all of that that research you want to do quantitative research so you even know what questions to go into the focus group with to start with but then there are the ads that um, tim was mentioning so you do some for broadcast but you may want to have a whole series that are just about motivating your own base and i think that maybe that's what this this series of o'toole ads might be about frothing up that base they're using his own words saying don't take canada backwards you know they had all those clips of him off the top saying take canada back take canada back and they played on those words saying, don't take Canada backwards. And I know from the focus groups that I've done on O'Toole um, in the winter and in the spring um, that this temporal moment of COVID, so this time that we're in, this risky period that we're in where everything, everything seems so uncertain, people will not be willing maybe to make a risky choice on O'Toole at this time, whereas maybe they do like him, but maybe this is just not the time for O'Toole right now. So I, I think I, I see the liberals trying to play on that, trying to, even if you like him, maybe you think you might want to have a beer on him, you can't vote for him right now just to get enough people to not go into his camp. So I think that's what the ads are doing. But there's lots of stuff. I mean, ads are such a fun and rich topic for us to talk about because it's not just, you know, the crafting of the ad and the research of the ad, but then it's like, how do you place the ad? You know, what what format are you going to put it out? Are you actually going to put any money behind it? Because increasingly, a lot of these ads you see have very low dollar values behind them and are meant to go viral. And then some are just pounding away and on every show and on every radio and on all the social channels trying to target very uh, narrowly their certain audiences. That's a good point. But you know what else is a good point, Kathleen, is they're not just trying to go after their own base to to re-motivate them. They're trying to go after your kind of soft NDP votes, right? They're trying to get them to move over to to the liberals. As they always do at a time. As they always do. Yeah. And the the question is, will that strategic voting play, which we know and we've, you know, seen play out really, I think most dramatically since the, the Martin days, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. back to that campaign with Martin when he was, you know, going back and back from, from the East coast to the West coast and really saying, give me your vote right now. That to me was the biggest strategic play. And, um, and I think people are getting a bit tired of it now. Um, And yeah, so, but we'll see for sure. And I think new Democrats are getting better at understanding, and this may be a topic for another day, but about the closing message of a campaign, right? So you think of a campaign as a 36 day campaign, you know, four and a half, five weeks, whatever it is. And, and then which message you put out, which week we're now going into the fourth week of this campaign. Please correct me if my math's right, folks. Uh, I think it's the fourth week we're yep, entering. And, uh, and, and, and so we're getting close to that, you know, campaign close message. And how do we shift? What do we focus on? Where do we go? Are they going to start to squeeze us on the strategic vote? You know, or do we just push back? Um, you know, Peter, can I just add one yeah. point very quickly here? So Thursday night, we're going to talk about the bases, the English debate. Also, Thursday night is the biggest live sporting event to take place since the election began, which is the kickoff of the NFL season. For years, conservatives use those live sporting events as platforms to put out ads. It will be fascinating to watch or afterwards look at what who rolled out what ads and what the ads were on Thursday evening because I don't want to break people's hearts listening to this podcast, but I suspect there'll be more viewers of that football game for consistency than there will be more viewers of that debate. And I will be fascinated to see what strategies employed on Thursday evening. Do you want to jump in on this, Supriya? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I think, you know, when we were talking about this a little bit last week, um, we had mentioned that when, you know, some of the, the, the demographic differences in terms of the the vote split, and it's very clear, at least, that uh, conservatives have had an edge with men generally, mm-hmm. and now they're starting to tick up with younger men as well. So, you know, millennial men. Um, and to, to Tim's point with respect to the, you know, NFL kickoff or whatever, I would suspect that there would be a lot of millennial men tuning into that NFL match. So I, I, I really look forward to seeing what gets rolled out. I agree. The, um, you know, Kathleen mentioned money here and there, you know, a lot of money is spent on these ads. So producing them and, and then placing them as, as she says, what does that represent in a normal party's budget? How much of their budget do they say, you know, they've obviously got the leaders tour and all that and signs and what have you. How much of a, what would be an average percentage that would end up going towards the campaign, whether it's on, um, you know, on, on social media or on television or wherever? What kind of percentage are we talking about? Has anybody got those kind of numbers? I mean, that's the secret sauce, right? How the different campaigns um, manage their budgets. Um, I mean, there was this famous story about Mr. Finley, correct me if I'm wrong, from the Conservative Party, uh, Tim, but uh, who, uh, former senator, now passed, but uh, he he um, he used to only pay staff these very minimal salaries so that he could actually save most of that budget for, for television and any kind of advertisements, radio or, or whatever. But you know, in the past, New Democrats certainly have struggled in kind of getting those large 10 million plus 12 million, you know, uh, budgets um, uh, to go for the, but this, this time around in 2021, they are going to max out the campaign spend, but what the, what the percentages are, if it's like, you know, a third on tour, a third on staff, a third on, on, um, on advertisements is, is a decision that every direct, every national campaign director makes that's their privilege, right. And how they allot that. Um, Interestingly, I'd be curious and I don't have any, line onto this but if tours are costing a lot less this this time around because potentially there's not that much zigzagging around the country there's not there's a lot more virtual events not just on mr o'toole's campaign but on all the campaigns they are doing more virtual events so so maybe there's uh, fewer tour costs i don't know but um you want to spend as much money as you can on advertising because the air war is incredibly important the the one-third 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 where you were just picking numbers out of the out of the air. You weren't suggesting anything. Well, I would never tell the secret sauce because that's the secret sauce. Even well, on your the, podcast, man's yeah, rich. The, the secret sauce on, on tour costs is that they stick it all on the media anyway. Anyway, yeah. You know, they, they overcharge the media for the, uh, you know, the flights and the meals Not and the hotels. And, oh, come on. Um, Tim, you, uh, do you want to give us a, any idea on percentages or uh, some sense of, of what your budget would be? On, uh, on 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 television and social media, etc. I was I was liking the lament for the poor journalists. Keep going. That'll, 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 get, a lot, that'll get lots. Of, I didn't uh, say listeners. the journalists were poor. <laughs> well, they are. They, they are. Their organizations are more destitute than they once were, as we all know. But that's, that's true. Of another day. That's true. I think Kathleen's right in the general percentage area. I think what you're also seeing now, Peter, with ads is they get lumped into. Um, the get out the vote spending because a lot, which, which is an important element too, because you're also con- connecting with people on social media and you're creating different ads around all of that. You know, back to Kathleen's point about Doug Finley and Patrick Mutard, who I've m- mentioned on this uh, uh, podcast before, their idea was not to spend lots of money on the production. In fact, there was the, their, their view was, highly produced um, ads as they related again to Stephen Harper weren't reflective of who they wanted Stephen Harper to be and what they saw in the focus groups. And you remember, and it was the 06 or 08 campaign. Some of the ads got ridiculed for not being of the highest production. They looked like something you would see on the, on the shopping channel, but Matard and Finley swore by that because again, to Kathleen's point, they believe the better buy. And this is the other part of your question was on, 
placing them. So producing the ads is one thing, and then there's buying the spot. So back to that NFL game, if you're going to buy ads on that NFL game, that's probably at least this week, the most expensive piece of real estate in the country. So do you spend that money in hopes that you, uh, you can achieve what it is you're hoping to achieve? So placement costs money. So I would almost say if you roll it in with get out the vote, it's probably up around them together 50 60%. Yeah, and you know Tim to, to Tim's point there it'll also be really interesting to see in terms of placement if some of that you know gets rejigged or re-strategized like if we're talking about Pete folks once again needing to go you know stay home in terms of rush hour because they're not going into work as much because you know the Ontario Science Table just did just come out this past week and saying that we mm-hmm. need to cut our our pre our, our contacts up to 70% from pre-pandemic levels it's like okay so all of a sudden you're no longer spending a ton of money on like AM drive radio right or yeah. or or the PM drive rate or like in terms of the the rush home so that will also be interesting to me and then you know to we've mentioned this before but how much of the ad buy, how much of that gets rejigged from, um, you know, traditional broadcast and traditional media to more on the social side and some of the more innovative things like going directly to PlayStation or Xbox one and what have you. And and as as you're like segmenting off, you know, who you need to get the vote out for and who you need to get the message out, out to. On conventional television, the conservatives have since back in, uh, you know, I, I think it was the 06 or maybe even the 04 yeah. campaign you were talking about, Tim, in terms of those first ads, because they were brutal. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. look brutal to a professional, right? Yeah. But you're right. I, they seem to be connecting on a totally different level that none of us were aware of. And the conservatives made a fine art of uh, of putting campaign ads in sporting events, mm-hmm. mainly hockey um, you know, in the in the spring because of Stanley Cup when they when the uh, vote was in the spring and in the fall once the season the hockey season started. So this is a little different with the opening NFL game and before hockey starts. But they were attracting a certain kind of audience, and Sapria says is mainly uh, millennial men uh, and older uh, males. Uh, who are there, you know, when you look at the, the demographics right now in terms of the, the way the polling stuff is going, that's their vote. You know, that, they're doing well there. They're getting somewhat clobbered on the female side, but on the male side, they're doing okay. So they get to them this way and maybe expand that vote. Um, can, I, can I give you a quick little story because it relates to absolutely. this? Because it's about, it's about connecting with an audience. So after Harper won in 06, one of the first, and our, our company was doing some work with CTV Globe Media. And at that time, as you know, they produced Corner Gas. And I got a call from Ian Brody saying, Prime Minister wants to go on Corner Gas. Because you'll recall that Paul Martin had been on Corner Gas. So not only were they looking for ads, they were looking for cultural, popular Canadian cultural programs that attracted the audience they were looking for. In 2010, while working still for CTV Globe Media, got a call saying, and I don't be offended by this, Peter, that Prime Minister wanted to go meet Jay Onright, of course, a very popular sports broadcaster, and wanted to do something with him. Again, knowing very well that was all driven both by the prime minister of the day's interest in that arena, but also knowledge of the power of the audience that these personalities or programs connected to. So the ad buy will also reflect that, you know, God forbid they should, they should try to get on, you know, news programs, but they, you know, <laughs> they, they love the sports shows and, and he wasn't alone in, in terms no. of Harper. I mean, Mulroney used to do that as well. And I think Craychen did that as well. They also lined up to get on Rick Mercer's show or yeah. on 22 Minutes. You know, no problem. Make fun of me. Be funny. I'll be funny. That will work for me. Uh, they love doing those kind of programs. And, you know, I saw uh, on, on Instagram yesterday that um, – Mark Critch is up on one of the planes uh, for the next couple of days. So he'll be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he'll be doing his shtick. Uh, well, with if, some you recall, yeah. if you recall, Peter, uh, many moons ago uh, in 2011, when you were up interviewing Jack Layton, I was mm-hmm. working for Jack Layton at the time. One of our campaign stops that you were on was in Newfoundland and we stopped and Sean Majunder joined us yep. on to screech in Jack Layton on the plane. So those kind of happenstances are, are really important, but it's also important to understand if you're, you're speaking to the right audience. So um, when I had to join the plane 
in the campaign tour in 2011, it was because they were going to a TV show, which was my alma mater. I used to work for CTV and I used to work for a show called Canada AM, uh, their morning show. And uh, there was a very popular weather broadcaster by the name of Jess, Jeff yeah. Hutchison, who was one of the most well-known broadcast uh, weather broadcasters in Canada. And I said to him, I'm like, listen, Jeff is more well-liked than basically any other broadcaster with, of course, the exception of you, uh, Peter, uh, you. in Canada. I'm like, <laughs> we got to get you to do the weather with Jeff. This is going to be the winner, right? And and so I, you know, talked to people, figured out a way that he could do the weather that morning with Jeff, and, and it just went viral. And that was really part of, and then a few days later, you joined the campaign, Peter, and it just, I mean, I remember we made the cover of some German magazine. I think, honestly, like, it, it went international, Jack, doing this weather forecast, but it's those kind of moments that where people are watching, tuning yes. in, you know, whether it's the Rick Mercer's or the Jeff Hutchison weather or whatever, that people like to see them in, in, in an environment that they're used to watching. And so whether it's fans of Corner Gas or, or whatever. Just to, uh, to clarify for our listeners, because I know they're all starting to write the emails like right now to me about, see, we always knew you were a commie. <laughs> Why? Well, when you say, when you say he joined the campaign, when Peter joined the campaign, joined the campaign. Jack, sorry, interview Jack. Sorry, yeah, I thought that was obvious. I know. Okay, no, but so. it was it was it was it was a great opportunity, and it was the beginning, you know, for a lot of us of really sensing that there was something going on. Mm-hmm. In that 2011 campaign, the, you know, the Orange Crush, I mean, that, that was a short trip for me because to get away from the studio, uh, you know, we did uh, Montreal, um, Charlottetown, and then uh, Newfoundland all in, in a couple of days. And Jeff Hutchison is a great guy. Absolutely. <laughs> and he's a friend. And uh, I love uh, watching and listening and reading his uh, tweets, uh, you know, quite often. He's uh, usually very pointed in terms of what he has to say and not just about the weather. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about what the real issue is this week. Um, Coming up in a couple of days, uh, debate nights once again in French and then the big and the one and only uh, debate in English. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Starting September 13th, Tim Hortons Smile Cookie Week is back. From September 13th to 19th at Tim Hortons, 100% of the proceeds from all Smile Cookies purchased will be donated to local charities and community groups across Canada. In the last 25 years, you have helped us raise over $60 million, and in 2020 alone, Smile Cookie Week brought in $10.6 million while helping over 500 community organizations. You can participate by grabbing your own Smile Cookie at Tim Hortons restaurants across Canada from September 13th to 19th. Okay, we're uh, back. Kathleen's in Ottawa. Uh, Spree is in uh, Muskoka. And uh, Tim is in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's in St. John's. Great place. It's funny hearing about Sean Jumber in that last thing. Because last week when we talked about going um, cod fishing with David Cochran, um, that was in Sean Majumber's boat. And Sean was driving it. <laughs> Sean was driving it. Uh, and uh, it was the morning of Mark Critch's wedding. So, I mean, all these things were happening. And few people remember that it was Mansbridge who caught the first cod. There you go. So there you Bragging go. rights. Bragging rights. Will last forever. But it was a fantastic trip. And, uh, you know, it was a, a great visit. Um, okay. Debates. Um, you know, you will all get an award if we can get through this without using the usual debate cliches. And we all use them, and I probably use them more than anybody. But there's a lot on <laughs> at stake on, on Thursday night especially. We'll deal with the English one because there's already been one French. Uh, however, in terms of what we saw last Thursday in that first French debate, what do the various leaders, and pick one, pick your own if you wish, uh, what do they have to do differently in this debate? What was the warning shot over their bow, so to speak, uh, in terms of what they've got to clean up for Thursday? And who would like to start? 
Yeah, I mean, I can jump in here. Sure. I think, you know, Trudeau did very well in the French language debate. And I think it sort of reinvigorated the troops, so to say. And when we were talking about, you know, rattled supporters and there was a little bit of, a, oh, yeah, our guy still got some fight in him. And, you know, let's let's go. Let's do this thing. Um, but I think one thing he's going to have to do and be able to pivot and straddle both messages is yes, point out the weaknesses of your opponents, definitely point out the inconsistencies with respect to Mr. O'Toole in particular. Um, But I think you also need to then go to the, okay, don't vote for this guy, but this is why you're voting for me. Right. And so I think the message on childcare, I think the message on climate change, I think the message on like, we're going to finish the fight, like that phrase, finishing the fight that needs to be said as many times as possible to remind people that, like we're the government and we're the party that got you through the, this pandemic. And we're, we're going to be there for you to get you through the tail end. And that this election is too important, you know, to leave to some dude who can't even remember what's on page 90 of his platform. <laughs> uh, does he have to be able to answer the question? Why is there an election a little better than the way he did the other day? Yeah. I mean, I think so. And I mean, it's interesting because I think when we were first out of the gate with our first podcast, I think I'd said something along the lines of you, you can complain about an election, but like once you're in the thick of it, like that's it. It's kind of like complaining about the refs, right? You can complain about the refs all you want, but if you're up to shoot free throws, you better sink those buckets. And like, it's, it's, it's kind of like the same thing here. It, it is a little bit odd to me that the message from the liberals from the onset wasn't that we're having an election because we need to finish the fight. And like, we need a mandate to do so um, because that's simple. It's, it's graspable uh, to the, to a regular Canadian. And whereas, you know, you can make the argument and the NDP certainly have rather effectively that parliament, you know, was working and they had their back. It's like, well, things are different. And, you know, we actually are not just dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with childcare being on the ballot. And I don't know if those arguments have been, um, made forcefully enough to the general electorate, certainly to their supporters, but there's a whole segment of the population, particularly on childcare, that I don't know if they necessarily appreciate the economic returns that a national childcare program will deliver. All right. Kathleen, what does Jagmeet Singh have to do? Well, I'm just hoping that there are no liberals listening to Sapria's very good advice. So if you could just play this this podcast maybe Friday so they don't hear her because she has some wise counsel there for the liberals. But um, on Jagmeet Singh, I mean, the thing about having multiple debates um, is that you can course correct. Uh, although I would point out that this coming Thursday's debate is such a different format than the TVA debate that they just did last Thursday, where it was a one one anchor wonder, um, you know, this multi anchor thing that's going to happen on Thursday. I don't know why the debate commission just can't get um, it kind of the format kind of nailed down because I think people all agreed that the format on on Thursday TVA debate was was a strong one. Uh, as you know what? I'll, the- I'll tell you why. Yeah, I'll tell you what I think the reason Fred is. Because Parker's not running the show, is that why? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I, I doubt whether Fred would have wanted that. Um, <laughs> Fred Parker is a director, uh, you know, like he called the cameras and stuff like that in in the past. But he, he like some other great CBC people, has retired since <laughs> since those days. No, the the reason why is, you know, as bad as that was, and it was awful. I thought it was brutal. It got more viewers than any other debate that's ever being done. So you have this clash, you have the networks going and pushing on, on the debate commission saying you want it. So you want more people served. Well, we couldn't get more people served than this. Now I think they were watching cause it was like watching a car crash. It was, you know, it was crazy. Um, but I think that's the reason they've gone with more or less. It's a little different, you know, uh, Sachi curl is going to moderate these five anchors asking the, all the leaders their own series of different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's the reason why. Now, I interrupted you before you were going to make your, your Well, just point. on me, just to answer your question quickly, I would say that um, 
you know, he suffers almost from the opposite effect of Jack Layton. So Jack Layton in his early debates uh, often was identified as a bit of a badger, you know, constantly interrupting and getting in. So we actually had to pull him back on early or on um, subsequent debates. We'd often rein him in. Um, but Jagmeet's the opposite. We almost need, like, I hope that people dial Jagmeet up a bit uh, in the next uh, uh, couple of debates where he intervenes a bit more, has some more forceful, forceful moments. Okay, Tim. Well, I think that one of these points also relates to the prime minister, because I think he and O'Toole are trying to manage the very obvious current of anger that is out there. And as the two front runners, they want that current of anger to run over their competitor as opposed to being run over by it. As you rightly pose the question to Supriya, there still is anger at the prime minister for the self-interested election as it's being described by his opponents. And that hasn't dissipated for four weeks. But you've seen the prime minister now try and drive that anger over to O'Toole and say, look, do you really want to elect this person? Do you know where he stands on vaccinations, guns, etc.? So O'Toole has to deal with that. The other thing O'Toole has to deal with, I think, is why choose me? Um, because that is, Kathleen talked about it in her focus group research, as I said earlier, that's what I keep hearing from everybody. Why Aaron O'Toole? We're mad at Trudeau, but why Aaron O'Toole? So how does O'Toole do that? I think that's part tone. I think he's got a, if he is casting himself as the average middle-class person, while he has to act prime ministerial, he has to be relatable. And I think Mr. Layton did that with great effect in uh, 2011. So relatability, how does he transmit that? I think he also, and, and Tom Mulcair um, uh, said this, so sorry, Kathleen, I'm, I'm referring to Tom Mulcair. Uh, he also said that um, it's important that his answers be shorter. I think Aaron likes to be uh, very, very, very long and thoughtful in his answers. That doesn't work in debates. I'm almost mirroring Aaron O'Toole right now. The third point I'd make is, is this. I think he's just got he's to hold his own against Trudeau, and he can't go over the top. He cannot overreach. If he overreaches that confirmation bias that people already want to have about why should I elect that guy will be met, and that will not be good for him. Okay, I want you to put. I want you to put each of you put your uh, your questioner's hat on. What's the one question you would ask? I, I, I'm going to pad this out a little bit to give you some time to think about it. What's the <laughs> one question you would ask if you could ask any one of these leaders something? What would it be? Now, I, I don't want an Aaron O'Toole answer length question. I just want a question. <laughs> So, who would like to go first? Oh, Kathleen's you know got her to go hand first. Up. Come she's, on, you know the keener. I'm going us. to go first. Okay, I'm jumping in because Tim gave me the floor. Okay, so, so two questions. I'm going to cheat as I always do. So, one for Mr. Trudeau and one for Mr. O'Toole. Uh, I'll start with Mr. O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, why didn't you uh, kick out some of you know? Why didn't you take care of the problems in your caucus uh, earlier, like Mr. Sloan? What took you so long uh, to get rid of people like Mr. Sloan? What was the hesitation there? Uh, for Mr. Trudeau, I'd say you know another. What? Why didn't you get it done in the past six years? Why haven't you these promises? Whether it's childcare, whether it's climate change, whether it's taxing uh, big wealthy corporations, why couldn't this have been done in the past six years? So those are the two. I put to them. Okay, Kathleen got two, so I'm going to get two as well. Um, my first, if it's in French, I would have everybody pronounce Putin because <laughs> Jagmeet last week had this, I don't know, man, a Putin truck, and it was not, for me as somebody who grew up in Granby, it was a hate crime against Quebecers as well as Indian people all at once. Sweet potato fries do not belong in a Putin, so that I will just put that there. And then my, my, my more salient question, I think, is somewhat along the lines of what Kathleen had said, but to o o O'Toole in particular, it would be, um, you know, <laughs> why should can Canadians vote for your team? And I think, you know, when you're talking about Aaron O'Toole himself versus the party, I, I, I'm not really sure we're getting enough scrutiny when it comes to the party to Kathleen's point about kicking people out. I mean, there are a ton of people that currently sit in caucus that I think if your average voter heard what they're 
views on or on a number of issues would be rather spooked. And that to me is kind of an interesting question, even though I don't expect it to be asked. Why don't any of you guys follow the rules of our little (laughs) thing here? I'm going to try. Okay, go for it. Well, I'll tell you the question I wouldn't ask Jagmeet Singh because he got asked it here this week and he didn't do very well. Who was the first premier of Newfoundland and Labrador? And as a Newfoundlander and Labrador, and he should know that's Joey Smallwood. So that one aside, what I would I, ask, I really, I, would ask, I can't believe that he didn't have that answer. I know. He, 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 the last living, former last living father of Confederation because Joey's no longer with us. Um, the question I would ask, and I think it's to Poole and Trudeau, and I take it from the very important focus group I had this afternoon with my mother's bridge club and listening to them talk about all of this. And it was, how can I believe anything that you're saying? There is this, it's about believability and picks off off of Supriya's theme. So Kathleen alluded to Mr. Trudeau in his six years. So you're telling me you're going to do this now. Why should I believe you? And in Mr. O'Toole's case, again, just taking it to, to guns. Your platform says this, and it says another thing. Why should I believe you? And I think whoever can best dress that up throughout the debate has the best chance of of scoring a few public opinion points in their favor. And I I would imagine many public opinion points, because if there's a common question in mind from coast to coast to coast, it's that one. Mm -hmm. It's like, why do you never deliver on what you say you're going to? Why can't I believe anything you say? Um, that you know, that's a very good question, and and coming. I'll tell the bridge group you liked it, Peter. They will be very pleased. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, uh, Anime Paul, she's going to be in this debate. Her party is in like serious trouble, but a debate can can really boost your chances. So, what does she have to do? Um, I don't know what advice she's getting or from whom, but she couldn't get it from three better people than than right here. (laughs) So in a sentence, hint, hint, in a sentence, what is your advice for the Green Party leader? Um, Supriya. I don't know if I have anything that would be constructive at this point because her party is in such disarray and in such shambles. But if I had to pick something and to stick with the rules, Peter, um, I think I would say something along the lines of like, just keep doing what you're doing. Like keep your head down. She's, she's very smart. She is, doesn't speak in these weird political talking points. And I find that incredibly refreshing. Um, And, you know, I, I think it's going to be nerve wracking for her, obviously being on her first federal debate stage, but you know, just remind people why you're there. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I I don't expect the Greens to be picking up a ton of seats, if if any, um, because of the way the party has dealt with this entire thing. Tim, tell the audience why you should be elected in Toronto and why that matters. Because she's not there to win the general election; she's there to get a seat and demonstrate some of the skills that Supriya's pointed out. So be very targeted. Don't be the disruptor. Don't be Elizabeth May who had a different agenda when she was there. Make it about getting yourself elected first. Sorry, three sentences. Kathleen. Significant opportunity for her for the first time on that national stage, having equal time as the other uh, federal leaders. She's got to use her opening and closing statement to make a compelling case, not only for her, but to reelect her to current MPs, because <laughs> that is the litmus test for her, really. If she drops down one, if she loses Paul Manley, she potentially loses Elizabeth May, never mind, not wins her own seat. That that spells even more dire situation for the Green Party. I think this is the first time she'll have been out of Toronto since campaign started. She's, I believe that's right. Yeah. You know, it's Toronto Center that it's uh, Toronto Center, I believe, that she's running in. Mm-hmm. Smallest, um, smallest riding in the country, yet mm-hmm. with the with more voters than any other riding in the country, which is interesting. Uh, when you look at Nunavut, largest riding in the country, smallest number of voters in the country, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, so whose vote matters more? If you're one vote in Nunavut, do you have more power than one vote in, in Toronto Centre? It's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, here's here's another question. Um, and we'll, we, we'll have to wonder whether this is going to come up. You've got to assume with all the heavyweight hitters there asking questions. But very little has been discussed about what is supposedly one of the biggest issues confronting Canadians, which is climate change. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think there was anything significant in the in the first French language debate the other night on climate change. But it doesn't seem to be a topic that's discussed very, very much on the, on the trail. And, you know, what isn't discussed at all or seemingly not at all, certainly not getting any coverage, is the one that a month before the campaign started, we all thought was going to be potentially the most dominant issue, and that was Indigenous rights. That doesn't come up anywhere. So what happened on those? Who wants to run at that? Because they, all parties are, you know, have the opportunity to be going harder on these issues. Look, I think it also matters what the media focuses on and what the media asks, right? Um, And this isn't me pretending like uh, I'm not trying to do hashtag blame journalists here or anything like that. But I, I, I think the coverage of climate change is that political reporters often treat climate change as a political game um, to be one-upped in terms of who's sniping at whom at any given moment and not necessarily the biggest crisis that our planet is facing. And I think a lot of it has to do, and I've had a lot of gripes with respect to political reporting when it comes to the pandemic. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, very few journalists have a substantive understanding of the science behind climate change. And they've, we've both sided this issue for way too long. And it's incredibly disappointing to me. And I think, you know, part of that is also mirrored and, and can be explained by the lack of coverage of indigenous issues. If you, you know, everyone on the campaign trail that's, that's following either any of the leaders around if they don't have indigenous background, if they're not necessarily from racialized backgrounds, it's another good point as to why we haven't really talked about the O'Toole platform, not mentioning anything, not having the word Islamophobia in there, not having the word black in there. Like these are, these are huge blind spots and they're not necessarily being covered because the people covering them also have those blind spots. I can tell you that for five days in the first two weeks of the campaign, I was inside the Arctic Circle working on a documentary for the CBC, which unfortunately won't air until the new year. But it's on climate change, partly on climate change. And I can still hear the sound of the water dripping off the glaciers inside the Arctic Circle. Um, And I was a half a mile away from them. And you could hear it pouring off those glaciers. So. Believe me, I know all of you do, but some people still don't. It's happening. It's real. It's very real. Um, Tim, on on the two issues. Well, I think Spree is totally right on the media agenda because a a narrative has developed, whether it's right or wrong, it's certainly something the O'Toole people are happy about, and that is all parties now have a policy on carbon pricing. So it's harder to pick apart. You've even seen the Global Mail come out and say, not that editorials matter, but, you know, the Liberals have a plan, the Conservative plan is better than it was. So it's not as contentious, doesn't at least in the eyes of the people covering it. On Indigenous rights uh, reconciliation, I think they're all afraid to be called out as hypocrites and have that uh, anything they say be challenged again around believability because of the potency and shock that we've seen over the summer of all of the discoveries of, um, of residential school grave sites and the like. So I think they're all running away from that as fast as they can because you can probably find a candidate in some party or someone else who has said something uh, they shouldn't have out of context and entirely wrong and they don't want to touch it and have a blowback on them and that's cowardly but that i think is the path all right kathleen you get the last word you have a minute to say it in well i would just say that the topics for this wednesday's debates the french debate are actually already out they just crossed the wire today and and they're focused on obviously indigenous issues and identity and culture issues and also environment is another topic i think there's five topics in in general and those two topics will come up Uh, so I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of time left and runway in this campaign. And uh, I, I know that these issues are truly important to Canadians, despite mm-hmm. the fact that Supriya mentions and Tim has mentions they haven't gotten as many headlines or as much ink or as many sound bites. So hopeful that we'll see more of that in the coming days. All right. It is week four. You were right about that, Kathleen, which means Oof. next week is the last full week before the election. You know, we often talk in, in campaigns about, oh, my God, this seems to have been going on for so long. This one hasn't. Doesn't felt that way. And we really are now kind of in the stretch run, the final two weeks before all this happens. Um, so 
Thank you for your advice. Thank you for your thoughts on all this. And look forward to talking to you again a week from now. All right. There we go with uh, the insiders and their take on where we are right now. Now, I've got a few things to um, mention before we wrap this one up for today, this uh, Labor Day, holiday weekend Monday. Uh, You know that I like to give you a fun fact each day that I can, and uh, this is one of them. Elections Canada, you know, that's the agency that's kind of oversees elections in Canada uh, for the federal election. It's the longest standing independent electoral commission in the world. It was created in 1920. And they appointed a chief electoral officer for life back in 1920. But now Parliament has appoint, appoints that person uh, for a 10-year term, which is a long term. Stéphane Perrault was appointed Chief Electoral Officer of Canada on June 8, 2018. So he's only a couple of years into his term as the CEO. Um, he's one of the few Canadians over the age of 18 who, by law, is not allowed to vote in a federal election. That's because he or she has a duty to uphold the principles of absolute neutrality and nonpartisanship. That goes with the job. Um, on the day of a federal election, Elections Canada becomes the largest employer in the country. The agency hires about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people in communities across the country. And... By law, they got to have the election on a Monday unless Monday's a holiday. Then it's the Tuesday after that holiday. A couple of other things to mention. You heard me talk a moment ago about my documentary on climate change and Arctic sovereignty, which will be going early next year on the CBC. It'll be good. You'll want to watch it. But I have a documentary coming up at the end of this week on Friday night at 8 o'clock on CBC and CBC Gem. September 10th, you can probably guess what it's about. This Saturday is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, September 11th. And on Friday night at 8 o'clock, my documentary will deal with, and it's called, Unfinished Business. Because there is unfinished business on this story. There's a lot of focus on what happened, not so much on why it happened. What was behind it? What are the questions that have been raised in the 20 years about what was behind 9-11? You might want to find time for this one. It's interesting as well. It's called Unfinished Business. It's my documentary around the question of 9-11. And finally, remember last year, the book I wrote with Mark Bulgich, Extraordinary Canadians. It was extremely popular. It was a number one national bestseller. And uh, I foolishly offered to sign some book plates for those of you who listen to the podcast and <laughs> were reading the book. I'm just kidding. It wasn't foolish. It was very kind of you to write, and a lot of you did. Well, this year, as a result of that, and there's so many other things I'm trying to do at the same time here, um, that uh, while we will have some book plates, we're going to run a contest. So the book's called Off the Record. It'll be hitting the shelves a month from now on October 5th. Special pre-order promotion for the Bridge listeners. Pre-order Off the Record in hardcover or ebook between September 6th and September 30th and upload your proof of purchase on my website, thepetermansbridge.com. There'll be a special box there for it. You'll find it. Starts uh, starts up today or tomorrow, that box. You have to pre-order the book first and prove that you have. And you'll be in line for the first 50 signed book plates. Off the Record is the name of the book. ThePeterMansbridge.com is my website. You'll find it there. Simon & Schuster is the publisher. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow with the reporters. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 